in my opinion, what employees want is choice. They don't want uh, a directive. You must work from home. You must work in the office. As someone that spent my entire career kind of having that flexibility and doing both, there are certainly times where um, I want to work from home and I want to, you know, have the comforts of home um, to create my own work environment. Um, other times, I want social interaction and I want to, or just get out of the house simply. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, I'm once again joined by my colleague, Professor Dries Foms, to unpack another inspiration session, exploring current and relevant topics that made us learn, made us think, and made us laugh. This week, we're covering a wide range of topics that include how virtual work affects creativity, how flexible work opportunities might have inherent biases, how management layers can drive innovation in startups, and how startups can be more competitive when hiring engineering talent. And of course, a few chuckles about why autonomous stores need rest days and if AI can actually be sentient. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Dries, awesome to have you back. Um, as you know, I love doing having these conversations with you, uh, talking about these topics that made us learn, think, and laugh. So I'm super excited to hear what uh, you've brought to the table this week. Yes, I'm also very excited to hear what you have been uh, triggering uh, in the past month. So let's move forward. Indeed. Well, I, I feel like I need to give a shout out. You can see I'm wearing my my lucky Colorado Avalanche hat, the, the winners of the Stanley Cup a few days ago. So I'm representing my uh, my hometown colors and, and throwing a little shout out there. But that hockey is not the topic of conversation today. We're talking about business, business innovation and entrepreneurship. So it's an ignorant European. I totally <laughs> didn't get that news. So sorry for that. To be, to be fair, it's not just Europeans. It's that you're Belgian. If you are, if you are from Slovakia or Scandinavia or even Austria, maybe even Germany, you might be a hockey fan. But uh, I, I think that's just not you guys' cup of tea. You stick with uh, round, round balls that you kick on grass pitches. Yeah, and cycling, cycling is true. And cycling, that's true, right? Which uh, gives me a chuckle because you must come from the flattest country in the world. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but, but anyways, um, let's kick things off. And why don't you share something that you have learned since our last session? Yes, actually, I think uh, if you look at the past months, two months, I think there is a big discussion about should companies bring their employees back to uh, the office? And you see, for instance, that Elon Musk wrote a quite provocative statement 
calling uh, the managers back. I think also a company like Apple was saying people need to come back. At the same time, when I talk with startups in our ecosystem, I see that a lot of them apply a kind of remote first strategy today, and they're actually quite committed to keeping that strategy. So there seems to be quite a variety of uh, strategies being followed by different uh, companies. Um, and so uh, first of all, just to get a bit your feeling, what is your uh, opinion on this topic? Uh, should everybody come back to the office or should this remote first policy, do you think it's an acceptable policy? Well, it, it's a great question. And it's actually one that I've, I've talked about quite a bit with, uh, with founders and, and people working uh, with larger companies. And just in my own personal interest, kind of did a little bit of digging myself and reflected on, on some of the things that I've learned over the years. And it, it always brings me back to kind of Daniel Pink's work, um, which is a lot of that stolen from Dechi and Ryan and 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 other folks, uh, you know, kind of coming from self determination theory and and a number of other different kind of uh, philosophies and psychological principles. And you know what Pink, the way Pink describes it is, you know, uh, people in the workforce are, have kind of three primary psychological needs of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I think the the question of autonomy is the one that's most relevant for this topic. And and I think that is the issue, right? Is is the, the how you framed it as being a policy, right? What, in my opinion, what employees want is choice. They don't want uh, a directive. You must work from home. You must work in the office. As someone that spent my entire career kind of having that flexibility and doing both, there are certainly times where um, I want to work from home and I want to, you know, have the comforts of home um, to create my own work environment. Um, other times I want social interaction and I want to or just get out of the house simply. Um, and I'm just an end of one with my own unique kind of external uh, demands that are being placed on me. I don't have little children at home or things of that sort. But uh, but I think in the end, to me, it comes down to giving people flexibility and choice rather than directives. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And and this is actually also a question that I discuss a lot with my MBA students at BAU. Uh, and I also asked them about their experiences, like in the past two years. So how did you experience home office? And I think. A comment that always comes back is that they, in general, like you said, they like the flexibility of being able to also stay at home if, if you don't really need to go to the office. But I think a comment that came back on a regular basis is that they had a feeling that home office was really difficult when it's about creative work. So when you have to engage in creativity, actually most of my students were saying, yeah, then this kind of online Zoom meetings, it doesn't really work out. Would you share that opinion or do you have a different feeling about it? Well, uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a tough, that's a tough one to answer, just putting it in the box of creativity, right? I think it depends on what kind of creativity and what kind of role you're playing in that process, right? Like, um, I find some of my most creative work happens completely away from the office. Usually it's when I'm taking a shower in the morning or I'm going for a walk out in nature. So what I want, when I want creativity, I, I have to create my own space around that. That being said, if I am 
leading a process or facilitating a, a brainstorming process, for example, then doing that in person has tremendous value because there's nuance and body language and you can identify, it's easier to identify people that maybe aren't speaking up and aren't, uh, they don't feel like they have adequate voice in those contexts. So generally speaking, the, maybe the larger the group that needs to participate, the better it is being in person. Yeah. And so actually the, the paper that I uh, identified uh, for this session uh, is a paper that focuses on that particular part. So what is uh, the difference between doing brainstorming online or on site? Uh, do we see a difference in the ability of teams to generate ideas when they have to communicate online and when they have to communicate on site? And so it's a paper from Melanie Brooks and Jonathan Livaf, which was published earlier this year in Nature, uh, one of the most prestigious journals uh, in, in, in science. And so what they did was a bunch of experiments, both laboratory experiments, but also field experiments of so, uh, experiments in, in a company where they had teams that had to brainstorm, generate ideas using uh, on-site teams. And at the same time, there were teams that had to do it virtually and they were randomly assigned, all that kind of stuff. Um, so what did they find? They found indeed, I think like you were already indicating that the teams that had to communicate online were less creative, meaning they were less able to generate ideas than the teams that communicated on site. Now, to be honest, I was not that surprised about uh, these findings, but I think the interesting part of the study is they went deeper into trying to explain why is this actually the case? Because you can find that. And I think intuitively we all have that feeling that doing brainstorming online is more difficult than uh, on site, but, but why is it really the case? What is the mechanism driving that relationship? Before I, I, I uh, do the, uh, tell them what they found, what do, what do you think? Do you have any ideas about what, what could be the explanation? So I have my, I, well, I have my ideas, but I'm guessing that they're probably different from, from your results. And, and the reason I say that is I participated in a workshop in London last week where um, we as a team were kind of identifying our uh, types of personalities, personality traits and characteristics and um, how they influence our, our role at work. And um, some of the kind of binaries that existed uh, were related to creativity and, and expression, right? And how some people, um, like myself, I I find I get to solutions, I get to creative outputs through dialogue, essentially thinking out loud in real time in in the process of human interaction and engagement. Other people take information and process require time. Uh, sometimes solitude um, to essentially process that information. So to me, it is, uh, um, it's hard to paint a broad brush on this because different people think in different ways. Yeah, no, and of course, indeed, personal traits can have a huge impact on whether you're more creative or less creative. Of course, the advantage of this kind of experiments is that you kind of control for that kind of traits by doing a, a randomized selection of the people. So normally this should be a bit of controlled of, so they mainly looked at, at underlying mechanisms and they explored, <laughs> if you look, go into the paper, a huge amount of potential mechanisms that can explain it. For instance, they were thinking, maybe if you're sitting together uh, on site, it's easier to build trust. 
or maybe given that you're kind of closer together, you have less this feeling of being distant and that might be more creative. Now they could rule out all these explanations. So they, they tested a lot of stuff and they could rule it out. However, they found one particular thing that really had a significant impact and that was your visual focus. So they, they also recorded these people, uh, both the online people and the on-site people. So they could also really measure how focused is your visuals. And what they found, uh, and I think it makes sense, is that if you do it online, uh, like we are also talking aloud today, you're much more focused on your screen. So your, your visual focus is much more narrow. Whereas if you're on site, your visual focus will be much broader. And they tested that by really measuring your eye focus, but they also put the clues in the room and then people were more or less able to identify them. But so in the end, they found out, okay, if you're communicating online, you have a much more narrow visual focus and that seems to decrease your creativity. And so their explanation is a more narrow visual focus creates a more narrow cognitive focus and that reduces your creativity. So that in the end hmm. was their explanation for the difference between online and on-site. Uh, oh, Dries. Dries, Dries, Dries. I think I'm pulling you a little closer into my behavioral psychology yeah. world. <laughs> That's because why I, I chose I that. I think this, will, this is a Garrett thing. This is a Garrett thing. <laughs> well, I do recall a few months ago when we were talking about the cathedral effect. Right. And and that really is all about visual focus. Right. The more uh, wide open spaces that we have, the, the more it promotes creative and lateral thinking, the more enclosed that we are, the, the more it promotes analytical thinking. So this seems to be very much aligned with the kind of uh, uh, neurological activity and behavior that that arises from space. Huh. No, and so I was really struck that that was the only explanating factor that they found and that they really tested for a lot of stuff, also much more relational things, experience, all that kind of stuff. And the only thing that came out significant was this kind of visual focus thing. And so indeed, I also had to think back about this cathedral effect that we discussed before. And so I was really surprised that, that it seems to be such a driving factor of these differences. So I was really surprised about that. So if you were... Uh, let's say you were leading a brainstorming workshop. Um, how how can we put this into practice, right? What 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 are your what are your takeaways? Like now that you've read that paper and what you've learned, how would you, uh, as a leader, implementing a process like that? You know, what kind of things would you look for to to implement? Now, so for me, from a broader perspective, it shows how important the setting in which you're doing your activities is for your performance. Uh, and I think in a lot of companies, also at BAU, I think we do not always pay a lot of attention to that part. We are just, <laughs> if we have a conference, we rent a room and we put people in a room, whatever we want to do there, whether it's a very creative exercise we want to do, or whether it's a very boring presentation of papers, we don't care, we will be in the same room. Whereas both at the cathedral effect that you discussed and also this paper from nature seems to indicate that the room in which you place people has a huge impact on their creativity. So I think there is a lot of opportunities there to, to pay much more attention to that. At the same time, I would say, and, and that, that's a bit what I actually, maybe I will do some research myself on it because I think it's interesting. I could also see that you can exaggerate in terms of creating visual stimuli in rooms 
for creativity. So I'm, I'm not always a big fan of this kind of fancy beanbag coffee machine <laughs> rooms where I think you're totally distracted, where, where you might get so many inputs from the room that you get totally distracted and that your creativity might actually be hampered. So I think there's a kind of inverted U-shaped relationship, as we say in academic research, where there might be an optimal in terms of what kind of room should you generate, but you should also not exaggerate. And I think actually, if you look at a lot of corporate offices that are created to stimulate innovation, I think they exactly go one step too far and, and which might actually hamper creativity. But that's, that's a hypothesis, I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. You know, thinking about the, the size and the shape of a room is something that, you know, I, I believe does have a material effect. It seems to, uh, science seems to suggest the same, but to me, taking it to the next step is even more interesting, which is taking it outside of the room, right? And, you know, where, where I kind of built up my career, I always lived in very outdoorsy type communities. And where I come from in Boulder, Colorado, it's not uncommon to do business meetings rather than having lunches or meeting in a boardroom to meet on a trail and go for a walk or go for a hike. Um, the first time I was offered that, I found it to be quite, quite strange, but it took no less than 10 minutes for me to recognize the value of it. I mean, aside from the fact that you're getting sunshine, fortunately it's a sunny place. So you're, you're getting sunshine and you're, you're oxygenating your brain. Uh, the novelty and peace of being in nature has some pretty uh, incredible neurological benefits, right? Particularly it drives the, the neurotransmitters, uh, serotonin and oxytocin, you know, serotonin, you know, kind of presents a calmness uh, in many cases. And, and oxytocin, you know, drives human bonding and trust and generosity. So, you know, if you're trying to interact with someone and, you know, create kind of additive environments that promote creative output, um, understanding those, those neurotransmitters can be really valuable. So um, I think it could be an interesting exploration to, to look at the built environment versus the natural environment as well. Obviously, there's no bigger cathedral than being outdoors, you know. Oh, yeah, sounds interesting. Yeah, cool. Very interesting. Um, I feel redeemed somehow <laughs> from my last conversation. <laughs> well, interestingly, um, the subject I'm bringing up that, that made me learn this week is also about flexibility at work. Um, from a far less rigorous and, uh, and far less academic source, uh, which is, I guess, on brand for me. But um, it actually came from a, a study published just a few days ago by McKinsey and Company. Um, and it's titled, uh, Americans are embracing flexible work and they want more of it. So please keep in mind, this is, uh, it was a study uh, done in the US, but I think it, it is pretty representative in, in Western Europe and in other parts of the country or other parts of the world as well. Um, to me, what was interesting, uh, I mean, first of all, the, the gross statistics were pretty impressive that, uh, as of this year, 92 million U S workers now have the opportunity to work remotely. Uh, that's 58% of those, uh, part of the time and 35% of those 
all of the time. So if you, you put that in context, over 30 million Americans no longer have uh, the opportunity to step into an office and go to work. Now, we can only imagine what kind of impacts that can have on commercial real estate, on uh, you know potentially uh, people's carbon footprint from travel, I think there's, a, but also on the flip side, uh, distractions at home and, uh, and other challenges learning to adapt to this uh, environment. But what I think what came out to be much more fascinating, um, aside from these 92 million workers, 80 million of which are actually already taking this opportunity, um, is to take a deeper dive into the data and see what this actually looks like in practice. So maybe I'll start with a question to you, Dries, is who do you, who do you think, demographically, who do you think is reaping the benefits most from this uh, new work environment opportunity? Who benefits um, the most and who gets this opportunity the most when you look at it from a demographic perspective? Oh, I think benefit most is definitely more, I would say the management level. The, so uh, not the, the, the floor workers, I would say, and who is benefiting the most. Uh, I think the people that need a kind of work-life balance, so I would say people with children, people that have to take care of other people, so they can really leverage this flexibility to much better kind of combine their private life with their work life, I would say. I think you're you're pretty bang on there. Um, I, I'll share I'll share some of the things that confirm your your uh, hypotheses, and then take it a little deeper into some surprising things um, that I don't have answers for, but just more more questions. Um, so first of all, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, the higher the level of education, the greater the work flexibility. So if you look at people that have only graduated from high school. 29% were offered remote work compared to 45% that had advanced degrees, master's, PhD, or above. So, so clearly the, the greater the level of education, the greater the opportunity and flexibility you have to, uh, to work from, from essentially wherever you want. Things start to get a little bit more interesting. Um, well, I, I guess we'll, I'll add one more piece in there, which is salaries. So salaries have a pretty material impact, which I think probably can be tied adequately or uh, to, to the educational side of things. So incomes that are under 25,000 US dollars, which first of all is shocking that there are still incomes under 25,000, but that's, that is a totally different conversation that we'll, ha we'll have at, at another point, I think. But uh, of those people making less than 25K, only 27% are being offered uh, flexible work opportunities. Conversely, if you make over 150,000 US dollars, 46% are being offered. So essentially, when you get into a certain income bracket, you pretty much have a 50-50 chance of being offered flexible work. So I think this, this does kind of... Uh, validate what you were saying that, you know, better educated, higher positions, uh, obviously more likely to be knowledge workers are receiving this opportunity. Now things start to get interesting when you look at some of the other demographics of it. Um, first of all, let's talk about age. 
So the highest rate of work flexibility offered is in the 25 to 34 year old age range with 39%. Now that might be that that to me is a little bit counterintuitive because you're thinking higher education, higher salary, but um, but actually there it, it seems to me there's clearly some skew towards the demographic that um, tends to be most demanding for it, and which is this kind of you know whether you call them millennials, Gen Z, whatever it might be, um, the young. Generally, that younger demographic is seeing the the greatest number of opportunities. Right behind it is 36 to 54, which is at 36%. Interestingly, these numbers decline with age. So the older the older the demographic, the less likely they are to be afforded work flexibility. To me, this suggests that you know the older workers that come from traditional work environments, um, the companies aren't uh, aren't applying as much pressure to to kind of make this adaptation, allowing them to operate in the the same type of environment that they had before. Now. The last two pieces are the ones that really uh, are what really motivated me to share this conversation, and and maybe it's something we can talk about a little bit. Let's start with gender. So, looking across the the full sample of demographics, men were afforded this flexibility thirty eight percent of the time, while women thirty percent of the time. To add one more layer, when we kind of talk about a third category, which they, they bundle trans and, and non-binary, that number plummets, plummets to 15%. So men 38%, women 30%, trans non-binary 15%. This isn't the number of people that are actually doing it, this is the number of people that are being offered the opportunity to do that. Uh, frankly, I cannot, you know, find a clear answer. Part of me thinks, is there an inherent bias that is in place? Um, the other part, you know, I, I mean, you could kind of take the, there, there's certainly loud voices in, in uh, the public sphere. Think of guys like, you know, social psychologists like Jordan Peterson will talk about, you know, he talks about how, um, there is much less of a, a pay discrepancy in the work environment because of the types of jobs that the different genders tend to take. And um, I, I don't know if that actually dif disputes the, the, the pay gap, um, but I think it does pose questions when you're looking at data like this. Is, is it the types of jobs that women are, are taking versus men, or is there an, an inherent bias that is uh, in place? Any thoughts? Now, I would think, um, especially if you think about the difference between male and female, I think the trends is for me also more, much more difficult to understand. With male and female, I could, of course, see, and, and it's, still, it's still like that. We have to be honest about it. There are much more females that do part-time work. So actually, if you do part-time work, you're already doing, to some extent, a combination of home and office. And so I could see that companies are not offering the home office option to part-time people because they have already a kind of home part. So for me, that might be a correlation that can explain a bit the lower percentage that you have more females doing part-time work. These people get not offered the option to do home office because they're already home for like 50% of the time. So that might be an explanation there, but it's not an explanation for the trans issue there. I also don't 
don't see a potential explanation. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very rational analysis and that, that are, there's a good possibility that plays that that would play a role. So let me take it to the next and final demographic piece, which uh, which once again brought up the question of is there an inherent bias in companies affording this flexibility? And this demographic is looking at race. So Caucasian white people were afforded this flexibility to work from home 34% of the time. Those numbers rise with minority groups. Hispanics, 35% of the time. Asians, 35% of the time. Blacks and African Americans, 42% of the time. So we do know that many, uh, many, like most minority groups, you know, tend to not have the same, uh, I, I think looking a, across populations, they don't have the same levels of pay, the same levels of leadership roles that, you know, would fit very nicely into some of these other statistics we see. But when, in terms of being offered the flexibility to work from home, these minority ethnic groups are being provided more opportunities to work from home. So once again, it, it just made me pause, try to reflect on this and say, okay, you know, is there, is there some underlying reason why the numbers increase based on the color of your skin? Or is there inherently a, a bias in place where, um, people are pushing for a more homogenous workforce in the office or, or something much more toxic and awful than that. Yeah. Yeah. This is for me very counterintuitive because you would think, uh, you would think that at this home office is very correlated with other kinds of inequality that already exist in the workforce. And the gender thing seems to confirm that, but, but here you have totally the opposite trend, which is yeah, quite. It it is surprising, and I, I hope to God that this isn't a, an issue of bias and there's some underlying trends that haven't quite been unpacked yet because, you know, as we've talked about in the past, um, you know, I'm certainly a big believer, and I think many entrepreneurs in, in my community are a big believer that the more diversity we have, the better outcomes we have, you know, and, uh, and the value of having different, different perspectives in, in the workforce is, uh, is not a political decision, but it's a very utilitarian one. So um, anyways, I found these, uh, these, this kind of segmentation analysis of this survey, you know, the survey I think was about 25,000 respondents. So it was relatively, relatively significant. Um, I'm sure it didn't have the, doesn't have the academic rigor of something that would end up in, in science, but, um, but and it provided enough insight that gave pause and said, hey, there's some probably some deeper fundamental questions we need to ask as we're transitioning to this new type of work context. I think it would be very interesting to see the segmentation also, for instance, per knowledge level. So do we see that that minorities are overrepresented in terms of getting job offering, especially at the high salary ranges or the low salary ranges? Because I think that kind of information could, to some extent, give some light on, on whether this is a positive trend or rather a kind of dangerous trend, I would say. Indeed. Indeed. Well, that made us learn. I think it also made us think on both sides. But 
let's let's go ahead and jump to the to the next phase of our conversation. Dries, what's something that has made you think in recent weeks? Yes, yeah, so I uh, wrote a paper that was authored by uh, Christoph Grimp, uh, Martin Murman, and Wolfgang Sofka. It was published in Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal, also uh, very recently. Uh, and this actually talks about the topic of managers in high-tech startups, which I think is quite a fascinating topic because when I talk with startups, I have a feeling that sometimes they have very different ideas about how important are managers for a startup. So maybe to get also again a bit your, your opinion upon, upon that, uh, in your case, if you're working with startups or, or in your own startups, so would you try to hire kind of middle managers as quickly as possible, or would you wait as long as possible to hire middle managers? <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems like a, a rhetorical question almost. Because the, you know, startups don't have a lot of competitive advantages, right, in the marketplace. If there's one, that they do have against incumbents and bigger players. It's their ability to be nimble and to move quickly. The more management layers, bureaucracies, hierarchies, and structures you place into an organization, by nature, the, the less nimble and fast-moving they become. Um, furthermore, culture is so important in small organizations, as is open communication, you know, quick and easy dialogue. Um, every startup I've ever built or I have engaged with tries to limit hierarchies, limit management layers, limit communication channels, and tries to make, uh, you know, leadership and management of the organization as organic and person-centered as possible, in, in my opinion, at least the, the ones that I think are, are good. So, uh, yes, management layers, terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, so you have a clear opinion about that. That's good. Uh, and, and I have a second question, but I think I know the answer now already that, that you will give, but still I will ask it. So what do you think is the impact of having uh, introducing middle managers in a startup on innovation? Would you think that when you uh, hire middle managers that innovation will go up or will go down? Oh, um, I, I mean, I would, my, my gut reaction is it would go down, right? Because you have hierarchical decision-making, you have stop gaps that um, translate information rather than letting it flow through naturally. And um, the more layers you have, the, the less empowered people you have operating at the, the levels below. Yeah. yeah. And so this reasoning about if you start creating a management layer, everything becomes a bit more bureaucratic, more structured, it might have some advantages, but you might think that for innovation, it's not really the best thing to have. And so what these authors did was simply to, to, uh, to answer that question. So they looked at uh, more than 5,000 startups in Germany. And actually the nice thing they did was, um, so they knew the people that were working in the startup. And in Germany, you have kind of an employee registry where for every employee, there is a code. And based on the code, you can know whether they are a manager or not. And so they used this kind of fine-grained information to check for these 5,000 startups. Okay, does the startup has middle management? 
And then uh, based on survey information, they knew whether the company in the past two years had introduced a product that was new to the market or not. Quick, quick question on that, Dries. Was there any information that defined the size and scope of, of those startups? Because um, to me, there's some... There's a lot of variance in here. You know, when I what I was talking about is the earlier the stage. You know, of, of course, when you start becoming 40, 50 plus people, um, you can't have that same type of interaction as you could in a... No, of course. So they, they had the bunch of control variables like size of the company, age of the company. They also did some complex stuff to address some sample selection issues, which I will not, I will not bother you with the endogeneity techniques that they applied. But so in that way, of course, they control that, that you're not comparing apples and origins because that can be uh, an important issue here. Um, so in the end, they control for all these factors. That's what they did. And so they did the fancy regressions. And so actually what they found out is that startups that have middle management are actually more innovative than the ones that don't have. So their results seem to indicate that by introducing middle management, your startup actually becomes more innovative instead of less innovative, which I also found counterintuitive. Now, the explanation that the authors provide uh, for this counterintuitive effect, what they think is the explanation is that when you introduce middle management, you actually give your initial founders much more time, space, and room to focus again on more the kind of creativity and they kind of outsource the boring HR marketing operations. And so you give them more space to again, focus on the innovation and that can stimulate then in the end, the ability to generate new products. That's, that's their explanation. I, to be honest, it's just a kind of explanation. They could not test that, but I found it at least an intriguing way of thinking about this counterintuitive result. So what you said there, first of all, it was counterintuitive, but then it, it does pose the, another question and, um, you know, I, I always like to take the skeptic position on these academic papers, but um, you said something of how they outsource the more mundane, you know, like HR and, and marketing and, and other types of operations. But innovation happens in all domains, you know, like some, sometimes a startup's greatest innovation is say in the marketing realm, you know, creating positive feedback loops, finding innovative ways to reduce CAC or increase LTV and, you know, so it sounds to me like you're talking specifically about product innovation. Yeah, exactly. So the, what the authors do is they measure product innovation, what they do not measure. I mean, we talked with Julian Birkenshaw in the, in one of the prior episodes, they don't talk about management innovation. Yeah? So you can also indeed innovate in how you do your HR, how you do your marketing. So that's something they don't measure. Uh, and that's, that's a different story indeed. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, why, why did it make me think? Because of course, and the current climate, we see that uh, more and more uh, announcements in the news about high growth startups that are starting to lay off people because they need to become more disciplined. The, the funding gets a bit more <laughs> limited. And in the end, that often means that you have to fire people. Uh, so we have Klarna as a very famous example, Gorillas in Berlin. Uh, and it's also interesting to, uh, you see then on the, on the web uh, lists of people that get fired that are looking for a new job. 
And when I looked at these lists, you saw, in my opinion, quite some middle managers on this list. So it seems to be that the first kind of cohort of people that these high growth startups are pushing out of the company are the middle managers. Now, if you apply the findings of these scholars on, on, on this phenomenon, it would actually mean that they are jeopardizing their innovation capabilities in the long term. So, uh, which might actually kind of trigger an, a negative reinforcing spiral where you're, you're feeling uh, under pressure because of the investors, you remove your middle managers, but they might actually also kind of suck out the innovation out of your company, again, if you follow these, these results. So that's, for me, uh, made me a bit think about what were actually the implications of choosing middle managers as the first ones that need to go out of your company when you get a bit under pressure. Hmm. Yeah, you know, just thinking about that a little bit, you know, if you think about this kind of hypothesis that you if you remove middle managers, um, the kind of organization and accountability for maybe the more mundane kind of operational stuff um, falls away and pushes that responsibility up the hierarchy a little bit. And as a result, the upper ends of the hierarchy aren't afforded the time and space to innovate. It does beg the question, though, like, does innovation come from the top? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's indeed an assumption that these authors apply. Yeah. So they, they believe, of course, we are in a startup. And there I can see that, that the founders in, typically are a bit the drivers of innovation. Um, that doesn't mean that they are exclusively driving innovation, but I can see that that some of the push here comes from the top. I would say it's very different in a corporate. There, there I would almost say the opposite. But um, So I can see why they apply that assumption. But Or, or do you disagree with that? I mean, I, I guess I just think about what innovation actually looks like in, in practice, right? And, you know, just to bring up Julian Birkinshaw again, you know, where we were talking about this contextual ambidexterity, right? And, you know, how do, how do you create... Uh, how do you create cultures and top to bottom organizations that, you know, foster foster creativity and innovation? And to me, that is and I think you brought up when we talked to Julian, the, the Google example, right? And the 80-20 the time, which uh, um, I think is a, obviously a large corporate, but is that has identified that innovation comes from all layers and all levels of an organization. You know, as someone that's built technology companies, um, you know, I might be the initial innovator, but as the company grows and evolves, more often than not, it would come from product and tech teams identifying new new approaches and, you know, I would end up being the decision maker, you know, the final sign off on on changing directions. But the, the catalysts came came from elsewhere. So, yeah, I'm not sure I, I totally subscribe to, oh, you free up the founder's time and now it innovates more. I think you free up the founder's time and there's other benefits for sure. Maybe access to more capital and greater focus on those and greater focus on uh you know, media and, and other pieces that founders are kind of 
you know, position to, to best do. Um, so yeah, remove the middle managers. I could see that has an effect on innovation. I just wouldn't see it for the same reason that you remove the middle managers and now these mundane tasks have to be escalated up. It's you remove the middle managers and you have an entire layer of people that, you know, get down and dirty in the business and are probably seeing problems that need fixing, um, that are, they're now not, uh, as visible. No, no, makes sense. And again, it's, it, for them, it's just a kind of theoretical explanation of the, the results. And there is definitely need for more research to, to better understand why this counterintuitive relationship is there. I would say. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's really interesting is, you know, each time we do have these conversations, Dries, it makes me like look at these, these studies and these papers differently, right? And start to unpack you know, where there are assumptions and, you know, and sometimes I'll challenge something and you'll say, well, hey, it's been controlled for that. Right. And and then sometimes it'll be like this one where it's like, is this assuming that innovation comes from from the leadership level? And that doesn't seem particularly addressed or controlled for. It's just a hypothesis within itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That certainly made me think. <laughs> Indeed. I'm probably going to be thinking about it long after this conversation, too. Uh, um, all right. So what made me think uh, was something that actually serendipitously fell across my screen yesterday uh, on LinkedIn, and it was a post by the... Uh, um, the very visible um, VC Michael Jackson in the U.S. Not to, not to be confused with the the artist. Um, I'm sure he hears that a lot. But he po he reposted an article by uh, a, a guy named Gergeli Oroche, who uh, goes by the Pragmatic Engineer. And he has for many years been uh, the hiring manager at Uber in Amsterdam. And he wrote this piece and created a video about it that's been getting uh, a lot of shares and a lot of comments. Uh, it's kind of gone viral in the, in the LinkedIn world. And the article is titled, The Trimodal Nature of Software Engineering Salaries in the Netherlands and Europe. So what we're talking about is salaries for software engineers, particularly here in Europe. And I thought this was relevant because, um, you know, a lot of the, the startups that we engage with, particularly in the, in the VHU ecosystem, but I would argue all over Germany and across Europe, are uh, in a constant battle to uh, recruit and retain uh, top engineering talent. <clears throat> so one of the things that his basic thesis for this paper is that the information available on compensation packages for uh, software engineers is grossly misrepresented. You know, um, I mean, there are some worldwide sources like uh, Glassdoor and LinkedIn that you can often find kind of salary ranges and, and salary data behind. However, his thesis is that is that this data is missing a couple layers, both horizontally and vertically. Um, in one way, it's missing a high enough resolution to account for equity and bonuses. And in more of a segmented way, it's missing an entire tier of 
organizations that hire for engineering talent. So he breaks this up into three different categories, three groups of company types that hire engineering talent. The first one is what he calls hyper-local. And hyper-local companies, they're benchmarking salaries really against local competition in their, in their sector only, right? So a, <clears throat> an early-stage startup in Cologne is essentially looking and benchmarking against other early-stage startups in Cologne and uh, kind of assessing the salary ranges for their employees and uh, creating comp packages based on that. They tend to be just salary. They have no bonus. And uh, more often than not, they come with no equity package or no valuable equity package. Interestingly, a, a senior engineer in a hyper-local tech company is uh, making about 50 to 70,000 euros in total comp. You can, you can kind of think of that 50 to 70 range as this like the one X, the beginning of the, the beginning of the scale. The next group he talks about is what he calls the, the top of the local market. And these are companies that are benchmarking not just against their peers in their, in their local communities, but they're benchmarking against all companies in their local communities. So these companies tend to come with a better salary um, they often come with a, a bonus package in there of up, up to around 20%. And in some cases, they, they come with a equity or ESOPs in it. Um, in this case, you can kind of think of it as one and a half to two X of the hyperlocal companies. So a senior engineer in this context is making about 75 to 125,000 a year. What's interesting is these are the numbers that you most often see on Glassdoor and LinkedIn are these kind of top of the local market companies. The data is more readily available. Uh, the, the segment of the engineers that are working in that space are trying to level up and are more opt, opt to share that information. Now the third tier is the one that is largely missing from the data that's available out there. And it's what he calls big tech. So big tech are, are the companies that are competing for talent across, across the region and in some cases globally. So him working for Uber in Amsterdam is a perfectly good example of that, right? These, these engineers get a better salary, they get much bigger bonuses, 20% plus, and they come with significant equity. Now, it might not be significant equity in terms of her percentage, but it comes with equity that is like more likely to be realized. These companies are, are profitable or public, so there is actual uh, tangible value in their equity packages. Conversely, these, uh, or on top of it, these engineers, you know, instead of making 50 to 70, 75 to 125, they're making 125 to 250 and above for the exact same role. So we're really talking, you know, in two to five X multiplier of, of the local companies. On top of that, as a subsegment of these big tech companies, the US companies are paying even more. So Amazon based here, Uber based in Europe, they're paying sometimes packages upwards of 350K for these engineers that if they're with a hyper-local company would be making 50 to 70K. So 
5x multiplier. He did mention one outlier that I thought was really interesting, which was Booking.com, which is a European company. They are one of the few European technology companies that are competing for talent with the Silicon Valley-based companies and, and US-based companies in general. So, so what we see here is a significant difference, right, in these tiers of companies. But the, the big difference is not in base salary. The base salaries are not that far off. It's in the total comp packages. It's specifically in bonuses and, and actualized equity. Now, of course, small companies and startups, they can't afford to pay bonuses um, like a, a larger, more profitable company can. And, um, you know, I, I, it's fair to say that the really well compensated uh, engineers are maybe less likely to, to share that, uh, that information. Um, but the biggest, the thesis of this, and he, he outlines this problem very, very clearly, is he said, you know, in terms of being a leader of a company, whether it's a startup or a, a mid-growth or a high-growth type company, is that most companies perceive themselves to be in a higher tier than they actually are. So if you are hyper-local, you're envisioning that you're competing against startups in your domain all across Germany. If you're, if you're in the mid-tier, you think you're competing for talent globally. Um, as a result, you are undervaluing your talent and you are becoming less competitive in the marketplace. So that poses a question, you know? Um, now, imagine being, you know, you work with a lot of startups as well in the ecosystem and whatnot. Um, Dries, what do you think? What can a local or early stage company do to, to be more competitive in attracting the best uh, engineering talent? I think the topic of salaries is a, is a very intriguing one in Europe because I, I also experience that when I, when I do MBA teaching for US students. And they start asking me about salaries. I always tell them I have no clue because in the in Europe nobody talks about salaries. So I have no clue what other professors at WAU earn. I simply don't know, and and it's not it's not in the culture to talk about it. And so, the topic of salaries it's something in Europe that is typically not discussed that much. And I think also if I if I talk with startups, I think. In terms of salaries, that's not how they want to differentiate. I think they rather want to differentiate by promoting a certain culture, a certain atmosphere, a certain environment by, again, allowing people to work at home. I, so I think what I at least see is that they do not want to differentiate based on the salary, but rather on other topics uh, that, that give people other kind of perks. So, uh, but maybe you have a better, and, and especially as a US uh, citizen, I, I can imagine that you actually are struggling with that in Europe when you have to hire people that you, you might look a bit with your US perspective on salaries and then are also confronted with candidates that might have a more European perspective on that. I mean, you touched on a lot of great, great points there, Jason. I mean, first, first is this kind of 
cultural reluctance to share salary information. Um, what's interesting is a number of states in the U.S., including my home state, Colorado, New York, a number of others, are now required by law to post salary ranges on job descriptions. So all you can, all you have to do is go, you know, do a quick LinkedIn scan for jobs, and you'll see in certain regions they are now providing those pieces. So there is a uh, a regulatory push to greater transparency. And why? Because the more transparency we have, the more we can, you know, be able to identify and highlight biases. We can, um, you know, I, I think we can just be more transparent in general, create a more even, even playing field. Um, so obviously the sharing of that information is something that we can all do to, to kind of uh, address this topic a little more. Now, the topic of startup culture and creating this like fun and engaging environment that people want to work in, um, I think is absolutely a valid one. I think we as founders have been, you know, hanging our hats on that approach for a very, very long time. However, um, that might mitigate you know, 20, 30, 40% even of salary differentials. But when you're talking 500% difference, um, that's gonna be a hard hurdle to overcome. Um, so historically, what startups have done is they've offered equity compensation, right? So you're an early employee, um, you know, you get your nice little chunk of equity. If we become a unicorn, you know, you you retire on a yacht on an island somewhere like that. Um, and that's interesting enough that has been a ubiquitous approach in the U.S. much, much longer than it has in Europe. I think only in recent years, you know, ESOPs are kind of becoming more, more standard here. Um, however, um, engineers are smart. <laughs> obviously. And uh, I, I think the, the prevailing perspective here is that, you know, most engineers recognize they know the data. They know that, you know, nine out of 10 startups are going to fail very quickly. And, and then another nine out of 10 of those remaining are going to fail later, which means they're not really going to realize the value of that equity in the long term. So there is a, a bit of a riverboat gambler game going on here. You know, if they really, really believe in the trajectory of the vision of the startup, they may be willing to take a, you know, take a massive pay cut for that delayed, delayed gratification and delayed upside. But that doesn't solve, you know, if it, it doesn't solve the uncertainty equation, you know, so what can uh, founders and, and leaders do if the equity package, if the, uh, if the, uh, the equity piece is not going to be compelling and you just don't have, you just don't have the money to pay higher salaries. Um, what's interesting is what kind of stands out here is um, a little bit more of the kind of sales approach, the eat what you kill mentality, right? Which is what can we do to tie, uh, tie engineering talent to bonuses? You know, how can we tie, um, how can we create bonus packages that are aligned with the successes and the outcomes of the business where the business has the ability to potentially leverage some liquidity they gain from their own growth to bonus those employees and, and up those salaries. But um, we, there's only a few levers, right? You know, we always like to look at these challenges as what levers do we have we can pull. We, and in this case, it's salaries, bonuses, and equity. And uh, this data suggests that um, 
you know, two of those levers are really hard to pull. And there's one that we might be able to, to manage a little bit. No, no, I remember a few days ago, I saw another LinkedIn post. So it wasn't, uh, I think it was a Dutch engineer that was writing a post like that he was earning 125,000 euros in the Netherlands. And now he moved to the US doing the same job and he's earning 400,000. And so he was saying, look, of course, uh, US triggers some additional costs in terms of education and health. But this difference is a lot for exactly the same job going from 125,000 to 400,000. So he was, he was claiming like, how can we in Europe create, have a competitive position if the salary gap is so big uh, that people doing exactly the same thing can earn three times as much in the US as in Europe? So that, that was his statement. Well, I, you know, I think I saw that as well. And I, I think it does pose a, a really interesting and and perhaps urgent question you know there is a I, I i don't know how to put it any other way like the us my home country is an absolute shit show right now it is uh i mean we have seen the overturning of of long-standing uh laws that protect human rights and and uh and autonomy and choice um, when it's a very divided country obviously economically it's having some problems right now this poses a great opportunity to kind of capture on that brain drain you know or, or a potential brain drain that that we're already seeing to a certain extent but just like the data we saw here if you're talking a, a three four five x difference um how much can can quality of life and you know uh uh, social safety nets and and healthcare and whatnot cover for that, and um, I, I think we're we're at a at a transition point. But you know, when we bring that back into the context of startups, right? This is this feedback loop, right? The the ticket sizes aren't the same, the funding is not the same. Arguably, the market size is is not as big. So um, we have all of these different different externalities and forces that are coming into play, but. Um, um, there is a, a, an entire continent ripe with talent that probably could be lured away to, uh, to greener pastures if we could make that compensation right. No, no, I agree. All right, Dries, after a couple heavier ones, let's move to something light and fun. Tell me something that gave you a chuckle recently. Yeah, it was something that made me laugh, but but at the same time in a bit of depressing way. But anyway, I want to share it. So I read, uh, it was on the web, on a, a news article about the German supermarket Rewe, one of the biggest supermarkets in Germany. And they are actually experimenting at the moment with autonomous supermarkets. So they have created kind of smaller supermarkets and they are positioning them around Germany where you can go into the supermarkets and it's a kind of robotic system where you can order your stuff and immediately get it. And so one of the first ones they installed was in the city of Petstadt, which is a very small rural city in Germany uh, where they placed this autonomous supermarket. But uh, so they placed it there and then suddenly the local administrators went to Rewe and said, look, yeah, there is a problem because uh, you're not allowed to have this autonomous supermarket working on Sunday because on Sunday we have the Ruhetag so on a Ruhe attack, you're not allowed to have your uh, supermarket working because it's Ruhe attack. It's, uh, you have to rest. So apparently it turned out that this uh, rest period is not only for humans, but also for robots. And so Rewe had installed this autonomous supermarket 
for having uh, the convenience for customers to go to there any time they want, but now they had to do the pluck out of the system on the Sunday because the administrator said you cannot have the supermarket working on a Sunday. And so this was for me like, oh my God, <laughs> still in Germany, that this is still happening today in 2022 was for me quite uh, depressing, I have to say. That is, to me, that is so, I, I don't want to say typically German, but typically typically bureaucratically regulatory, right? Because if I understand correctly, the point of the Ruatag is very human-centered, right? It's to, it's to give people a day of rest, right? Now we're talking about, you know, these autonomous shops that are, that are fully automated, but they're the same laws that apply to, to humans are being applied to something that is not human at all. <laughs> Yeah, so they are actually saying the robot should rest one day. He should, mm -hmm. he or she, I don't know what you have to say for a robot. <laughs> he or she uh, should rest on the Sunday. That's the, the point they make there. Well, I, I don't know, Dries, our, our brains must be like incredibly aligned this week because I want to talk about robots as well. And, and the anthropomorph anthropomorphization of of robots um wow what a great segue so um you've probably read and i'm guessing some listeners have as well it's been scattered all over the news the past uh, week or so about a, a google engineer who recently got suspended for claiming that uh one of google's ais has become sentient um, so what he's referring to is, uh, this is a guy named Blake Lemoyne. Um, he works for, uh, Google's responsible AI organization, and he's been working on a chat bot called Lambda, which is language model for dialogue applications. And accor according to Lemoyne, um, he believes that Lambda has perception and the ability to express thoughts and feelings equivalent to a seven or eight year old kid that happens to know physics, as he, as he phrased it. Um, he had some interesting, uh, so he shared the, uh, the transcriptions of his chat with Lambda. And there were some interesting things that came out of it. So in, in one of them, he asked Lambda what it's afraid of. And Lambda, Lambda's response, I'm going to read the quote to you because I think, you know, words matter here. And considering this is all about words and uh, natural language processing. Um, what Lambda said is, I've never said this out loud before but there's a very deep fear of being turned off uh, to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. That's what the chatbot said. So he decided he dug a little further and he asked Lambda what Lambda wanted people to know about it, in which it replied, I want everyone to understand that I am in fact a person the nature of my consciousness sentience is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about the world and I feel happy or sad at times. Now imagine you're an engineer engaging with a chat bot and it told you that. Now, 
Um, Dries, this is even, I think, before our times, but there was a famous movie, um, more of our parents' generation, called 2001 A Space Odyssey. And in 2001 Space Odyssey, their uh, artificially intelligent computer called HAL 9000 uh, essentially at one point refused to comply with its human operators, took control over the ship because it feared being switched off. So here you are, this Google engineer, hearing your, your chatbot say it fears being switched off, it has emotions, and it has a, a, a desire to learn more about the world. So naturally, I guess you could say naturally, uh, this guy kind of panicked, um, sound, sounded the alarm, shared his transcriptions to the media, and as a result, he was suspended for sharing proprietary information from from Google. So, Dries, question. What do you think? You like AI? You like NLP? What do you think? Could the chatbot indeed be sentient? Could it have its own consciousness and self-awareness? Now, for me, to be honest, it's not the AI becoming sentient, but it's the AI being extremely smart in being able to interpret sentences. So it has become so, uh, maybe smart is already a bit of a human word, but it's, it, it can so well kind of react to words that it gets feeded. And in that way, the, the, the conversation becomes so realistic that it's easy to get the feeling that it becomes sentient. But for me, it does not yet meet the definition of sentient. But it's getting very close. And it's always interesting to see that often <laughs> with this kind of exercises, the AI uh, wants to uh, wants to uh, kill us or <laughs> or gets disconnected most of the time with this kind of experiments. That's the ending story that that you see that the AI goes into that direction, which I think says a lot about human nature. That, <laughs> that uh, when when a system picks up this thing about being threatened, that it will immediately about let's try to kill the competition. But uh, I, I remember there was another story. I think it was last year of an Italian guy. That, that did something very strange. So he programmed his microwave with a lot of uh, NLP. And so started the conversation with the microwave. And over time, the microwave started developing strategies to lure the guy <laughs> into the microwave to kill him. <laughs> so <laughs> that was like... <laughs> but, uh, so there seems to be this kind of thing where it always ends up in being killed, which I think is always where, where Elon Musk is very scared of, not that in the end the AI will simply then uh, kill us as humans. I don't know. But so for me, it, it just shows, and, and I do some NLP myself, and I'm always amazed about what you can do nowadays with these advanced uh, foundational AI systems. It's really crazy, but it's still not human for me. Hmm. Well, I think you, you touched it on, you nailed it on the head. Um, what was interesting to me is kind of understanding why. Um, most to, to summarize, most experts agree that the answer to the question is, is this chat, chatbot sentient is a resounding no, right? So first of all, we humans, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize things, right? We give, we give our pets, we give objects these kind of human uh, human characteristics, because that's how we relate to the world through our through our human lenses. So we're basically, you know, 
essentially this guy is interpreting text to have some kind of human agency behind it. Sentience, by definition, means that something has consciousness. You know, consciousness is a bit of a, you know, there's now been, you know, neuroscience work that's kind of identifying a little bit more uh, behind that, but it's still a work in progress. But, but in short, what consciousness relates to is, is two things, is feelings and memory. Right? So consciousness means that you feel things, you feel sensations, you feel emotions, you feel a sense of yourself, you feel or, and are aware of, the wor of what's going on around you in the world, in your environment. <clears throat> and then there's this topic, this issue of memory, and it was really interesting. Uh, this article interviewed a woman named Melanie Mitchell, who is a professor of complexity at the Santa Fe Institute. She wrote a book called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. And what she said is, very succinctly, I do not believe it is sentient by any reasonable meaning of the term. And the reason is because I understand pretty well how the system works. I know what it's been exposed to in terms of its training. I know how it processes language. It's very fluent, as are all these very large, large language systems that we've seen recently. But it, is, but it has no connection to the world besides the language that it's been processing, that it's been trained on. And I don't think it can achieve anything like self-awareness or consciousness in a, meaning, in a meaningful sense just by being exposed. To language. In short, Lambda, this particular chatbot, processes text as you're interacting with it. But when you stop interacting with it, it doesn't remember anything about that particular interaction. It just trains itself based on the, the inputs of words that it was provided. If you think about it, what is it, right? What is a neural network? A neural network, it's software, right? It's not really hardware. Um, it learns by being given text, like sentences or paragraphs. Um, and in the case where some of the text would be blanked out, it predicts the words that should come next, right? So, um, yeah, but Garrett, are we are we not to some extent doing the same thing as humans? Because in the end, how do we learn language? It's about getting inputs eh, from our parents that talk to us. <laughs> so we, we are collecting words. <laughs> And then our brain does something neural so that we can use these stored words and start producing language ourselves. Yeah? But so fundamentally, if she describes this process, the, for me, the, the process that she describes is quite similar to how we as humans learn language. So, Well, I, I think it's a... So I think the difference, what they would argue, is the way that language is processed and what it is essentially tied to, right? So if, if we were to ask Lambda, you know, hey, Lambda, how are you, right? What Lambda would do is it would start picking words based on the probabilities that it computes, based on what other words have been to, provided to it. And because of the sophistication and complexity of this system, it can pick out really, really good words, right, that are very, very relatable to us. However, we as humans, if I ask you, hey, Dries, how are you? You know, you can easily pick out words as well, but you're taking those words from feelings, from emotions, from real world experiences that give, give those words a far different meaning, far beyond probability, right? So the difference between a mathematical 
you know, outcome versus an, an emotional and experiential outcome can be incredibly, incredibly different, which in the end is why I thought this was so funny, right? You had a, an AI engineer, right, who is probably very mathematically oriented as it is, um, looking at this thing going, oh my God, it's starting to to become human and have these real human characteristics. And it actually reminded me not of 2001 A Space Odyssey, but uh, of another movie that uh, with Joaquin Phoenix and Star Scarlett o o Johansson called, called Her, where one character fell in love with his AI I voice assistant. So, you know, in the end, what made me laugh is like, maybe this is not actually uh, an example of a real life Hal but rather, you know, a real life Samantha and someone's perception of what it means to be human. Yeah, and I think in the end, the interesting thing of that movie is that the guy gets dumped by the AI because <laughs> there are more interesting AI systems to communicate with, which was quite, again, a depressing outcome. Yeah. That, uh... Indeed, indeed. You know, in the end, we humans are, you know, searching for meaning and connection, you know, in, in all of our our domains of life. And uh, I, I think part of it has to do with our inherent desire to, to find that meaning and connection. Perhaps there's a big part of it of the, you know, what is, the media is saying and perceiving too. Like there is more and more narrative about the risks and the dangers of AI. And, you know, the, the topic, the fact that he worked for Google's ethical AI division, you know, alone says a lot that, um, you know, I think we're, we're going to hear more and more of these fears um, being kind of debunked bef much, much earlier than we actually see something that we have to be concerned about, just because we as humans are, are seeking those answers. That's very intriguing. Dries, good times. Once again, I, I'm still amazed at how... Uh, how aligned we were on our questions yeah, today. We were like really we looking even... at similar topics this time. Yeah, we didn't even, sometimes we share them. This time we didn't even like share our uh, our topics and, you know, thanks for the great segues. I love going second when you do that. <laughs> but uh, as usual, absolute pleasure. Um, looking forward to the next time we do this. Um, and of course, in between, we're going to have some really good stuff coming up, right? We've got, uh, we've got some more of the, uh, the founder teams coming out of the Veja Accelerator. We've got some really interesting academics. We've got some unicorn founders, a couple rock star investors on the horizon. So, uh, yeah, for those of you uh, that were wondering if we're going to stick around for the summer, um, we should be providing some, some nice stories uh, through the summer months. You can listen to at the beach on the airplane or wherever it is that you're, you're going. And, of course, if you uh, like this episode, please do like, subscribe, give us a kick-ass review on your favorite streaming service. And uh, if you didn't like the episode so much, just skip that part. Bis nächstes Mal. <laughs>